You're listening to Heart of the Ark podcast from the Office for Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Newark. We're coming to you to bring knowledge and some courage as we voyage through this life as missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jennifer Benke, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Father John Gordon. Hello, dear friends. Uh, here we are once again for our, another episode of the Heart of the Ark podcast. I'm Father John Gordon, along with the Associate Director of the Office for Evangelization, Jennifer Banke, and it's our privilege and delight to share this time with you. And I'm going to ask Jennifer to uh, lead our conversation today on, well, she'll tell us what we're talking about. Thank you, Father. Um, it's always a pleasure to speak with you on or off mic. Um, so today I figured since we're closing in on the end of Advent and beginning of Christmas, I thought we would talk about family traditions and community and the traditions that we celebrate at this time of year and how they connect us to each other and to our our church. Nice. And also in that vein, there's a traditional prayer that comes from the it's called the St. Andrew Novena, and I thought we could start with it. It's uh, St. Andrew's Day. You say it from November 30th through uh, December 24th, and I thought if we prayed that together, that would be a nice way I to like start. That. I like okay. that prayer. That's a good prayer. So, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail and blessed be the hour and a moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem in the piercing cold. In that hour vouchsafe, I beseech thee, O my God, to hear my prayer and grant my desires through the merits of our Savior Jesus Christ and of his blessed Mother. Amen. Amen. I I love that prayer, too. I uh, remember I didn't know it as a child. Uh, but I learned it much later. I think when I was on staff at Franciscan University of Steubenville, um, one of the priests there uh, prayed that prayer. And uh, so he, I heard him say it once, or he mentioned it in passing, and he showed me the he gave me a little holy card with that prayer on it. And uh, I just thought the, the wording of it, sometimes traditional prayers have a wording that uh, brings an elegance to the language. You know, hail and blessed be the hour and the moment. In that hour, vouchsafe, oh my God. And then the tiny print is at the bottom. You're supposed to say it 15 times a day. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, but uh, praise the Lord. Uh, it's helpful to for me to remember that's not superstition, but it's a, it's devotion. Yes. But it is a lovely, lovely Advent prayer. Absolutely. My mom puts it on the refrigerator. She said it as a child, but she never taught it to me. So it's new to me because recently she said, you know, you should teach your kids this. And I was like, well, you know, you didn't do such a great job with that. But <laughs> Well, it's funny because I remember sharing it with uh, one religious sister that I'm very friendly with, who uh, I would be, I was surprised that she knew it. She prayed it growing up and she loves it. I was like, you do? I, it just struck me as she would not be that kind of a person. And so it's just, I think it, because so many people like your mom and the sister have known it since they were children, there's a lot of warm remembrances about that for them. Yes. Yeah. So talking about warm remembrances and coming, approaching the Christmas holiday. 
holiday and the end of Advent, I thought it would be important for us to talk about some of the traditions of our church and uh, of a religious nature and some maybe some of the traditions that we do together um, to prepare that are not necessarily religious. but So like family traditions, not just church traditions, yes, family absolutely. traditions. Yeah. Yes. So uh, talking about the ways those both inform who we are mm-hmm. as people and keep us connected to each other, but also the ways in which um, we can maybe think about what traditions we keep going forward or which traditions we may have to leave by the wayside, those types of conversations that we're all kind of in in right now. Sure, sure. So um, before we talk, I love to define things, right? So Yes, she does. I know. Yes, I'm, she does. I'm kind of specific, <laughs> right? I'm a little bit a little bit pedantic, but he puts up with me. So this is comes from a book that I had to read for this last semester of my of my schooling, and it's by Terry Vailing, Practical Theology, and he talks about tradition in two ways. So the first, he talk says, sometimes we think of tradition as tired and worn, old and dusty, but it is first and foremost a gift. Among other things, it is the gift not of my own making. It is not generated by my own resources. Rather, it is given to me. So that's one part of what we're talking about, the tradition. But it also says the gift of tradition, however, is not something we admire and then place in a glass display case or enshrine in a museum as an artifact of the past. Rather, it is to, a gift to be given, not to be owned. So I thought those were very important for us when we talk about what it is that we're talking about, a tradition, that that kind of helps us think about what that is. And on the very large macro scale about tradition, not so much in terms of this conversation, but just in terms of the bigger church perspective, we look at the handing on of revelation about the nature of God as a threefold uh, braid, so to speak, via scripture, tradition, and magisterium. Yes. And we speak of uppercase tradition and lowercase tradition, so to speak. Right. And um, the challenge, of course, is that we are constantly discovering or trying to articulate which is uppercase and which is lowercase in the tradition. Right. And so that leads to conversations and debates and greater articulation about certain aspects. But it's a very important part about the handing on of the faith. We're not solo scriptura, nor are we just a hierarchical authoritarian. And the tradition is a great way in which they support one another. But that's a real far afield right. piece of what we're trying to Not, say. But yeah, I just want to keep it to like, what is it we're talking about? I can about? be pedantic too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smart too. I want to say something smart. <laughs> but, you know, talking about like this time of the year, I was just thinking um, like when I was first in a, a, a men's house, uh, there were a bunch of us living together in Christian community. And uh, some of us were full-time in the house. Some of us had jobs outside the house. And there were about 20 of us in the house. It was a large house in Newark. And uh, we, had a, we had a thing called Advent Angels. And we picked each other's names out of a hat. And for the whole season of Advent, I would be some other brother's Advent Angel. And it was anonymous. And I might do his chores for him or I might... Uh, put a note where he slept or different things like that, especially because we were, most of us didn't have much resources. So it would be with that person that you would share some very simple Christmas gift. 
but because you were an Advent angel, we prayed for them all throughout the Advent season and tried to find little ways of just kind of making their day a bit of a blessing. And I was talking to some friends recently who are teachers in a school, and they are doing that in their classrooms, having Advent angels. Uh, And then they'll reveal them just the last day of class before Christmas break. And I think that's also a very lovely tradition because it helps uh, foster uh, an awareness of the gift that we can give to one another in ways that we often overlook. And the anonymity of it gives a little bit of energy and excitement, especially realizing, oh, I really want to do something. I don't want to have it revealed uh, at the end that I did nothing for my Advent angel. Yes. (laughs) And "Mm." I love that you brought in the idea of of um, this school teacher bringing it into the schools because the other two conversations I'm going to have this month are with campus ministers in a sure. boys' school and a girls' school. So I kind of want to get their ideas of how they talk about that sort of thing. And I think you could also do it just among the faculty and staff as well. Yes. Uh, Advent angel, so to speak. So anyway, that's just a, a, a nice little tradition that I think is, uh, and I like calling it an Advent angel. I know in some places they call it like a Kris Kringle or, or something like that. Or a secret Santa. Yeah, yeah, but I love the Advent angel kind of imagery because it also communicates that we're doing this with a certain bit of faith perspective. It's yes. not merely, you know, oh, I guess it's the time of the year we should be nice to each other, but the awareness that because of the incarnation, Christ dwells within us. And so I'm not an Advent angel just to you, but to the Christ in you. Yes. Uh, And I think that's a really nice piece of the tradition. Absolutely. So the reason that we have traditions, like what, you know, we live in a commercial age. Why do we do things? We talked about this with ritual. Why do we do things that are not feeding our immediate needs, Mm -hmm. right? So um, when you Google why for traditions, (laughs) my my very thorough research, um, because I'm so smart. um, She is. She she really is. (laughs) Um, There are five reasons we have tradition. They help you make memories. Mm. They give you something to look forward to. They provide consistency, which, again, is important for teachers and for for anyone who deals with young people. And they strengthen your family or community bonds, and they remind you of what truly matters. So I thought those were also good guidelines for how we think about what do we keep, right? Yes, yes, yeah. You speak about consistency, especially useful for children. But um, I think I was telling you a story about... uh, adult children, as it were, and the importance of maintaining tradition. So this friend of mine was telling me the story that um, this was several years ago that her mother had died. Her Mm -hmm. father had passed away much earlier. And so it would be the first holiday season without mom. And so her sister was going to take care of Christmas, I guess. I think it was Christmas. I forget what it was. But anyway, she was going to change the traditional menu, either jettison the turkey or whatever they would typically have, or so totally do it so totally differently now that mom was gone and we're creating something new, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so all this stuff she was going to do to kind of revamp it. And the friend of mine (laughs) said... Don't mess with Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and because it's true in terms of traditions, 
how many of the family traditions come out of the kitchen. Yes. You know, how many were around the meal, around yes. the food and the preparation of the food. Um, things like, you know, uh, take the chicken and cut it in half and place it side by side. And it's like, why is that there? Because when the recipe was first done, the oven wasn't big enough to put the whole chicken in type of deal. Right. And that just carries through. Yes. But I know that there's so many traditions. I, you were, We were taught before about baking and cooking and cook cakes and pies and cookies and all just wonderful expressions of tradition for this time of the year. Yeah, my I have two kids and their birthday birthday happens to be next week, right right up on Christmas. And so, you know, when you're when you have little kids in a school system, you bring something for them to share in in the kindergarten through 6th grade. So, I started making gingerbread cookies for them to bring to class and they would have it at the Christmas party because it was usually around the last day of school. And that was their thing. Well, they're now in high school. They're not bringing cupcakes to school anymore, but um, there was a bake sale for a activity that my daughter is involved in and some of her teammates came over um, to help. And so they had never made anything outside of uh, boxed cake or a boxed set of brownies and so watching not only us take fresh gingerbread that we had made before she went to school out of the fridge and then rolling it out and then cutting it out and then me making the uh, icing and them sitting down to decorate it was they kept you know apologizing oh I'm not good at this I'm not great at this and I kept saying no 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 like you're just not in practice I mean I've got 44 years of practice at, I know, I know. Okay, I wasn't making when I was two, but like, or one or none. But um, I, I've got a lot of years of practice. And now my daughter has had this practice since she was in first grade. Now she's in high school. So of course she's going to be in a different skill level, but it's not something you can't learn. So if you want to, and that's that's the type of idea of like a sharing of a of a non-religious tradition, sure. but allowing someone else to experience part of your culture or your family's history at this time of year. And it's something that your daughter delights in enough that you want to invite her friends to be part of. Yes. She could have been embarrassed. Some, pe- some ch- times children, especially teenagers, are embarrassed by family traditions. I, I never embarrass my children. Never. <laughs> Next issue, we'll have a rebuttal by the kids. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, you know, that sometimes there's, but that that she likes that tradition and and likes doing it with you. That's part of the tradition as well. One of the traditions I had growing up is very interesting as a very strong memory. Uh, When we were very young, of course, we would always go to, well, we would go to Mass Christmas Day. But um, my mother would often go to Midnight Mass as well as maybe Christmas Day or Maybe not. Anyway, she would go to midnight mass. We were not allowed to go to midnight mass till we reached a certain age uh, because it was kind of like a rite of passage that you could stay up late and still function the next day and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, being the oldest, I was the first one to be allowed to go to midnight mass. And it became a real uh, delightful aspect of something to look forward to, like you've earned the right, as it were, to come to this this mass. And um, it, to this day, the midnight mass... Uh, in a parish or whenever they have the, the, the mass at night is always just a great joy and delight for me because 
more than the other masses, there's usually a great deal of Christmas caroling, singing ahead of time, and there's just a real joy in being together um, that I just uh, uh, like. I just love it very, very much. Me too. I, th I feel like nobody goes to midnight mass just to check a box. No, they right. go with a purpose to yes. be at midnight mass, and it's it's my favorite time. It doesn't matter how many people are in the pews. It's my favorite time to be like, we stayed up all night for Jesus. <laughs> when I was a chaplain, Saint. Joseph Regional High School, uh, the tradition there was to have a Christmas Eve mass, like maybe at eight or nine o'clock at night, um, whatever it was. And it was the only time of mass, type of mass that we did that was a broader mass as opposed to just the school. And the place would be packed, alumni, parents, current students, people coming back, young alumni seeing each other uh, for Christmas break. And it was just a delightful thing. And I remember one night we would have it in the gym and the gym had windows were very, very high up. And I remember one Christmas Eve, I'm celebrating the mass and I look through the windows and it's starting to snow. And it was just like a picture postcard delight, right. you know? And I just really thoroughly enjoyed because there would be a large crowd, real joy in being together. And it was just a wonderful uh, occasion, those kinds of traditions that would, would develop uh, just even in the, the school. Right. Something very simple. My parents, I know this will come as a surprise, but my parents sang in the choir, right? And they always sang at midnight. So I, too, was the oldest and we had a babysitter un until I was old enough to also stay up and sing it at the at the mass as well and my kids likewise stayed home with a babysitter while i've been singing and then at some point i moved them to be able to sit in the back pew of the choir and you know uh, i think their first christmas they did fall asleep under the overcoats of the bases in the back pew because you know they were young and okay maybe it was the first year was a little early but they, they made it they made it okay but um they love go you know the same thing there's it's a rite of passage and you're there with people who really want to be there and that's that's important something else baking related but also uh, tradition, religious tradition related. Um, my family, it, uh, I know with my last name with a silent H, it's probably no surprise that we have ties back to Germany. So um, we make a traditional um, Christmas bread called Stollen, but we don't make the one that necessarily comes, you know, I don't use all the dried fruits because I don't really like dried fruits. My, my great grandmother decided her favorite fruit that was preserved was maraschino cherries. <laughs> so we make we make this awesome red, but it's got maraschino, it's chunks, big chunky maraschino cherries and pecans and the icing. And it's it's a really great bread, but it's uh it's nothing like a traditional stolen, but it's our do you still do you still make that stolen? Yes. So we make it on Christmas Eve. Does Father John get a slice? Father John, if he's good, might actually get his own little stolen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sehr gut. Um, yeah. Ich wollte sehr gut sein. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will be very good. <laughs> yes. So so um, we, we make it on Christmas Eve, but I'll make you one early because I probably won't see you. Um, I'll, and then we, uh, we put it on the counter and it cools and then we ice it right after midnight mass. And then when you wake up in the morning, it's there to cut fresh bread and you have it early enough because of course kids get up early to check the presents under the tree and then that's all we'll eat and then we'll go to mass in the morning and then come back and have our big 
Christmas dinner at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, that's very nice. That's yeah. very nice. You know, speaking of uh, certain special foods at this time of the year, for a couple of years I served in Polish parish in the Archdiocese, St. Adelbert in Elizabeth. And I was introduced to the opłatki, I think I'm saying it correct. If I'm not, I apologize to my friends, um, which is like a thin wafer kind mm-hmm. of piece. And the idea behind it is that everybody would have a piece of this thin wafer bread and you go around to each person who would break a piece off it and you wish them well blessings uh, uh, for the Christmas season and for the beginning of the new year and uh, you might say something encouraging about the person how you're grateful for them in some particular way each family might do some different kind of expression but it's a lovely way in which we kind of ritualize what we want to say to one another and it creates an environment that is different than you know, the purpose of giving gifts. One of the things that happens in the exchange of gifts is we're speaking about our esteem and affection for the person we're getting the gift for or the obligation. <laughs> but but the Apwaki gives it words to it, you know, not just, oh, yeah, Merry Christmas, here's a present, but I appreciate this about you or that. And I think that's a very delightful tradition that as as we grow in a in, in international awareness that other cultures and families can adopt as their own as well. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a in a with certain traditions in my home and even when my my family was very young, we had certain traditions mostly based around whether or not the kids could make it to midnight mass, mm-hmm. right? So we went to the family mass earlier in the evening and then you know, we had a quick dinner and then mom would go out to the midnight, right? So once they started coming to, they would, you know, I put them to work at the family mass now and then uh, we have dinner and then we go all go back out to the midnight mass. There's, we've created our new tradition of what we want to eat on Christmas oh, nice. Eve. Nice. So it came out of, you know, me realizing that it was just really going to be three of us around the Christmas table at the Christmas Eve table because we couldn't get it up to grandma's and it was just me and my two kids and I I said you know it's Christmas Eve anything you can have what do you want to eat like wildest craziest ideas and I think he was like nine years old and my son said I love crab cakes and I'm like all right. Okay. So now we have, and my mom, my, I, and I said to his sister, what do you like? I like ravioli. So now uh, like, and I went out and I found a red and green, two different flavors of ravioli that of I could cook. Of course I did because I'm crazy like that. But then, and then the crab cakes kind of red and you put a little pesto on it. It's green. And you know, so like, but that's a new tradition mm-hmm. because it was just the three of us and we could, you know, it was like, okay, what do you want to eat? Is it still crab cake or ravioli, or does it change every year? No, it's still. We just went over to the shop right in West Orange and bought out the rest, rest of the red and white uh, raviolis. Yes, excellent. Yeah, so excellent. it's all yeah. <laughs> One of the other uh, traditions in our family growing up was the nativity scene. Yes, and I think most families. Uh, have a nativity scene. I remember that was my um, present for my siblings uh, when they each got their own place to live. Yep. I would get them a nativity scene because who thinks of buying that for yourself? Right. Anyway, um, so we would set the nativity scene. It would be at the base of the Christmas tree and everybody was there except the baby Jesus. <laughs> Santa put the baby Jesus okay. in, the, in the crib because when we went to bed Christmas Eve night... Jesus wasn't there. We'd get up Christmas Day morning 
as children, there's the baby Jesus. So Santa would do that. But the other thing that was so funny, I think of it now as almost humorous, but it was a real teaching moment, is the wise men were at the other end of the living room yes. on top of the grandfather clock. And every day they got a little bit closer to the crib until Epiphany. Yes. So it was a kind of a fun like moment in which the, the like I guess it's way before Elf on the Shelf, as it were, you right. know, the kings and the wings or however you want to say it, but <laughs> They would get closer and closer because they weren't there when he was born, like the shepherds were. And it was just, and you know, and, and I know of families that uh, get nativity sets, nativity scenes that children can play with, like they're plastic or whatever. They make him now so that children can play with them because the younger ones like that. We weren't allowed to do that because they right. were going to break and <laughs> we can't have nice things and all that kind of stuff. But I think the nativity scene is a wonderful way in which we bring our faith into the house, in which we uh, make it very clear and articulated. And I think that um, for our listeners, if you do not have a nativity set, if you set up a Christmas tree and you have stockings and you don't have a nativity set, I want to encourage you to consider investing in that. It can be a simple one, nothing fancy. It just makes a statement that as we say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Yeah. I have um, my parents, when I had uh, my children, my parent that was our first Christmas with the kids. That's what I got was a nice nativity set because from the time I was 12 years old, I bought my own in like a Boy Scouts fundraiser. Um, and they were maybe the size of a thimble, right? Mm -hmm. And baby Jesus was like your finger, your pinky fingernail right. big. And they were tiny, but I brought them to college with me. Mm. I just, I always had a tiny little, it fit in a, in a cookie, in an old cookie tin was my whole nativity set. That was it. And so when we got the new one, it was like, okay. And now every year um, it, during Advent, my kids helped me put it up. And this year, because my, my daughter's gotten a little more uh, creative, um, I offered to allow her to, and, and we redid the, you know, we had, we needed a new backdrop, let's just say. So um, we were going to put it on top of the piano, but there's a little more space to spread out. And so I said, you know what, will you make a focus of something in the background? And she made the most beautiful, like desert scene painting with a star in the center and like sparkles coming down. So that like behind it, and it was just like a, a lovely time to spend with her in the backyard, spray painting a, a piece of wood we got from, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a craft store. Wow. But she just, she was like, I know what I want it to look like, mom. It's got to look like this. So she did a great job. And now it's the, it's part of the nativity scene. When I was uh, living in an apartment in the Bronx, and there were several of us who were uh, kind of in the area trying to, to grow in Christian community. Uh, we put in a friend of mine put a nativity scene up in in the living room in, in, in the apartment, and he did something that was part of his family tradition, which now I always incorporated, is that in the back of the of the backdrop of the of the the stable or whatever it was, even the corner was a cross. Okay. Just the, the a wooden cross, reminding us that's why he came. Mm -hmm. You know, and. Um, the Franciscans have a great devotion to the crib and the cross. Yes. So incarnational. Francis, of course, was the one, St. Francis was the one who developed the nativity scene, the creche. And so uh, when I travel, for, like where I pray in my room, I have a crib and a cross all year. And when I travel and I'm going to be away overnight or something like that, I bring little things with me. Um, I bring a little crib and a cross as nice. well, just because to, to remind me of the 
that they're both so necessary. They're yes. both so important. And uh, I just I just love that kind of ability to remember that as wonderful as Christmas is in terms of its innocence and its joy and its delight, there is a certain sense. We, we experience it, for example, right away. The next day is the Feast of St. Stephen, mm-hmm. you know, the first martyr. Like, he came to die. Mm-hmm. You know, we're born to live. He was born to die. Right. Remarkable. And uh, similarly, I have, speaking of St. Francis, I have a San Damiano cross mm-hmm. that is the, my kids know, that is the tallest ornament on the tree. Now, oh, I like the only that. thing that goes above it is an angel that says joy to the world. And then right underneath the angel's feet is the San Damiano cross. So that that is always part of how we how we uh, experience, you know, and I always think the first after St. Stephen's Day, then we have um, the Feast of the Holy Innocence. Yes, so, yes. I mean, there's so many opportunities for remembrance of our mortality and, and innocence and the... And you've got St. John the Beloved in there, too. Oh, okay, don't okay. Forget, <laughs> don't forget the Beloved. <laughs> the Beloved John. That's right. <laughs> As opposed to Father John, the Beloved oh. <laughs> John. Not the same. Okay. Not the same at all, you know. Dear listeners, I I hope that you are uh, encouraged and reminded of some of your own uh, family and faith Christmas Advent traditions. Uh, You know, we hold on to traditions, as as Jen was saying, uh, because they uh, communicate things that are important. Uh, We jettison traditions uh, sometimes too quickly and we regret it. And we sometimes uh, fail at trying to make new traditions. For example, I remember I was telling you about this in our family growing up, we would exchange our presents Christmas Day, Christmas morning. And uh, But the family across the street from us that we're very close to, they would exchange their presents Christmas Eve. I don't remember whether it was before or after midnight mass, but they would exchange their presents Christmas Eve. We did that one year. We did not like it. We did not have anything to wake up to on Christmas morning. So... That was a tradition we did not adopt. Right. That <laughs> we held on to the one that we have. Um, but I think that the kinds of traditions that, uh, even if they're not explicitly faith-filled, because it's about Christmas, and if we celebrate Christmas as a spiritual, religious, Jesus-centered reality, then even those secular traditions help carry that Christmas carols, yes. singing Christmas carols. I I used to go Christmas caroling with a bunch of families in one of the parishes I was in because that was their tradition. Right. And so wonderful things. And this is coming out late because I just had my Christmas carol concert last night and I just couldn't focus before then. So, um, yeah, Christmas carols have always been a part of, of our family tradition. And, and, you know, there are other cultures that are, are so imbued with tradition. I know... This evening begins Las Posadas sí. for the Mexican uh, and Spanish-speaking countries. Similarly, the same idea is uh, Simbangabi begins this evening for the nine-day novena leading up of a novena of masses leading up to the incarnation of Christ in 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 the stable that yes. we all all and so embracing those traditions and 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 the music and the culture and the and the food and and honestly, I mean, my faith has always been enriched by. Um, experiencing other people's witness of faith. So if you're not, I, I'm not. 
I'm not Filipino, but some of my favorite people in the world are. So I, of course, I'm going to be at some manga bee if I can be there, you know. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and there's the adaptation of tradition. So in the Philippines, my understanding is that the Sambanga Bee Mass is a pre-dawn mass. Yes. Early, early, early in the morning. Yes. That it ends as dawn is arising. Right. Uh, Well, in most places here, it's an evening mass. Yes. Thanks be to Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) But there there are people. There there are some places that do it, but the most places. But I know, for example, uh, in the around the archdiocese that we send out every Tuesday, um, we have a whole list of various Simbangabi masses. And uh, if your listeners are interested in doing something for an Advent evening, you might kind of go to one of those. Yes. Uh, if you don't get around the archdiocese, uh, we encourage you to go to our website, rcan.org slash evangelization. Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Newark, rcan.org slash evangelization. And there will be a, a prompt for getting on our mailing list. If you go to that prompt, it will send you to Constant Contact because they manage our mailing list for us. And you will then start to get every Tuesday around midday a, a, a uh, an e-blast that we call Around the Archdiocese, which has all sorts of events listed. Uh, and among them at this time of the year are the various Simbanga Bee Masses. Right. Yeah. And there's, um, I, I know that there's some living nativities yes. around the Archdiocese this week. I know mm-hmm. that there's some posadas happening. There's um, a couple of Rorate Masses, yes. which is that early morning mass that's, that's happening right. in candle- that's right. candlelight. So, I mean, and, and, I, I can't say enough to go to Simbanga Bee because the food is just amazing and they always have so much food afterwards. So please, please go, go for Jesus, but stay for the empanadas. Oh, no. Oh, Lord have the mercy. Lumpia. Lord yes. have mercy. <laughs> one other place that, one other tradition that's growing, it's kind of a um, interesting one, is the growth in uh, celebration of what people call the Blue Christmas. Yes. And this, for those who are not familiar, this would be a Christmas celebration. Uh, Many of our non-Catholic Christian churches do this, and what's happening in some Catholic places as well is that it would be a Christmas Mass. It might not be Christmas Day. It might be the fourth Sunday of Advent or Christmas just before Christmas, but it's basically a way of acknowledging the birth of Christ without all the joy and and the delight in it that is so often attributed to Christmas, and it's especially designed for people who have lost a family member or close friend relatively recently, within the past year or so. Because that, that this first holiday, especially if you're by yourself, if, if there's children around, this is not for children, <laughs> because they give a wonderful example of bouncing back, so to speak. But I know for many people, there's just a hurt in their heart at this time of the year. And rather than uh, glossing it over, this blue Christmas uh, idea is one that is catching on in some places. And so um, if you hear of one, find out about it, um, but just keep a note of it. Uh, we're not aware of all the ones that are happening, but please, it's just a, a not another way for persons to acknowledge Christmas in a way that will help them. I don't think it's a long-term solution for people. I don't think it's the kind of thing people should be planning on going to for the rest of their lives, so to speak. But in the initial moments, awareness of grief, it can be a very comforting, uh, different kind of tradition. Absolutely. I, I am aware of one that has always happened at one parish. And uh, at a certain t- point in my life, that was the one I looked forward to yeah. because I knew the people on either side of me 
were also experiencing a big hole in their hearts. And so just having a quieter, uh, more reflective, sometimes just, you know, rather than the big uh, joyous hymns, it's more of the um, more reflective hymns, more of the reflective carols of consolation. Back to the Christmas carols, if I may, most of us know the first verse of a lot of Christmas carols, but the second verse of most of our Christmas carols is very powerful. Yes. They talk about things like a second birth or the he died that we could live or those deeper, deeper tr- elements of our faith that are expressed. Sometimes they're glossed over. Or we miss them in the first verse that we sing more like where we're going ice skating or going from house to house. But uh, if you have a chance to, to look at those second and third verses of our of our favorite Christmas carols, you'll see some deep theological and spiritual truths there that are part of the Christmas season and yes. is delightful. Yes, and and they enrich our understanding of what it is and, and bring us out of the uh, commercialization feeling. So um, I think that we've said most of the things we need to say, but I just, I want from the bottom of my heart, I want to wish all of our listeners a a blessed end of Advent in your preparations and the peace of Christ that comes into all of our hearts, the light and peace of the Christmas season. I want to wish to you from my family to everyone out there. And I echo that. All of us uh, in the Office for Evangelization uh, share all of us. That this <laughs> the is whole it. staff. The whole staff. <laughs> uh, but truly, um, that uh, the the prayer that that we might come to know and recognize He who comes to us in history, mystery, and majesty, be the one whom we welcome and recognize and show forth to others. And so, Lord, we ask a blessing upon our listeners in particular, whenever and wherever they hear this, that they might know the love of the God who sent his son willingly coming to take on our nature, that he might give us the spirit even from the cross. And may this blessing come to us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jen. Heart of the Ark podcast is an initiative by the Office for Evangelization at the Archdiocese of Newark. If you want to find us online, you can find us at rcan.org slash evangelization. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Very soon we'll be updating our social media for the Heart of the Ark, but you can find us on Fireside Podcasts at Heart of the Ark. 
www.fireside.fm. Our theme song is composed by and orchestrated by Eric Hunter, a dear friend of mine. You can find out more about Eric and his performances and compositions at Eric, E-R-I-C, Hunter, H-U-N-T-E-R, music.com. This has been a pleasure, and I look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in the future.